Everything about this moment in history seems uniquely designed to challenge our mental health. We are suffering, we need answers, and we need help. That's why I'm so thrilled to be partnering with Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound to host their new podcast series, Going There. I'm Dr. Mike Friedman, clinical psychologist and life coach. With Going There, I will talk with musicians who struggle with their mental health, just like us. After all, mental illness affects us all. And the same artists who have stepped up to share their wonderful work with us are now sharing the intimate details of their journey in living with mental illness. We are going to ask the tough questions, and we're going to have the difficult conversations, all so that we can learn from each other. But more importantly, to shine a light on the difficult topic of mental illness so that we can all come out of the darkness and get the care we need. So we hope you join us on this journey. Going there, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Um, I'm just going to start... Again, but I don't think we need to stop recording. I think what we should actually do is start with the very end of the show. Let's do. Uh, Do you want me to do it backwards? We're gonna do it backwards. We're gonna do. I used. I used to know how to do the alphabet backwards, but then I realized that it was really just me doing the chunks of the alphabet in reverse order, and it wasn't the actual letters Mm -hmm. backwards. So you know, that was a rough day when I figured that out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Utterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And today we are joined by a special guest. He is the author of the Abel's book series, and he's the voice of CinemaSins, Jeremy Scott. We're so excited you're here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm humbled. I'm humbled Aww. and excited. <laughs> we, are, we are also humbled and excited. So yeah. it's just... We, we I know. <laughs> So this is a comfort horror episode and we define comfort horror as the scary movies that don't, that we don't really find scary. They actually make us feel good. And maybe we've seen them a million times or they remind us of like happier times in our lives or they feature a really good sweater and any horror that makes us feel good or helps us when we feel bad is comfort horror. And Jeremy, you have chosen one of my absolute favorite movies for this episode. And I'm so excited. We are talking about X machina today (laughs) Uh, but before we dive in we're going to give a brief synopsis of the movie because we have to talk about the ending so we're going to just tell the entire story now so here Mm. is your spoiler warning all right 
Caleb is a sweet little programmer working for a Google-esque search conglomerate. As we meet him, we learn he has just won a contest. His prize? He gets to spend the week at the secluded home of tech billionaire Nathan, who owns his company. Once Caleb gets there, he finds a minimalist mansion that rests above an underground compound with a strict system of control, where a personalized keycard gives him access to some rooms, but not others. Nathan, much like the house, presents as sleek, fit, and brilliant, but we soon learn that he's hiding many secrets, and also that he's a huge asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Caleb Caleb learns that he is the human component in a Turing test, a method of distinguishing artificial intelligence from human intelligence. After blowing some smoke up Nathan's ass, he meets Ava, Nathan's breakthrough invention an intelligent, uncanny machine with a beautiful face and a metal body. In a series of sessions, man and woman bot get to know each other. Caleb questions Ava's ability to make choices, and Ava questions why she must prove she deserves to exist. Hint, it's the patriarchy. Ava flirts with Caleb, who develops an uncertain attraction. Caleb also learns that Ava is responsible for rolling power outages, This becomes the way the two secretly communicate under Nathan's spying nose. We learn that Nathan plans to deactivate Ava after the test. Caleb discovers the disturbing truth. He's created several female AI before Ava, including his servant Kyoko, an Asian woman he has programmed not to speak and that he also has sex with. He keeps the deactivated, nude, and abused bodies of his inert inventions in his bedroom closet. Caleb devises a plan to get Nathan drunk and escape with Ava, but it turns out Nathan was aware of the plan and that the true test subject was Caleb. According to Nate, Ava was just pretending to like Caleb. Her manipulation done in order to orchestrate escape proves her intelligence is all too human. Caleb then reveals that he put his plan in motion the day before. The power outage unsealed all the doors in the compound and Ava is out. It's time then for a fight to the death. Nathan at first gets the upper hand, but he is stabbed in the back by Kyoko, then again in the front by Ava. In the struggle, Kyoko's face is smashed and she appears to perish. Finally free, Ava looks at all the previous models. She humanizes herself by adding skin and hair to her body before donning a white dress. As she leaves, she chooses not to release Caleb from his now locked chamber. The power goes out. Caleb is trapped. The helicopter intended for Caleb lands, and Ava, outside of the compound for the first time, goes to meet it. The pilot apparently doesn't question this, probably because <laughs> Ava is just so dang pretty. <laughs> we, we cut to a busy intersection in a city and see Ava walking through the world, just one of many people on the street, and finally free. Yay! Yay. <laughs> you get chills. Woo. Um, so now let's do a feelings check. And this is where we share our first experiences with the movie and how it makes us feel when we watch it. We think that it is really important to be aware of our feelings and practice sharing those feelings with other people. One of the things I was kind of talking about in therapy the other day is it's easy to talk easier to talk about them when the emotional charge is not so heavy. And that kind of greases the wheels so that when the emotional charge is there, it's you're in the practice of sharing. So this is becoming my favorite part of the episode, I think. And there's a feelings check in this movie. Like I am so excited. he's like, just tell me how you feel. It's like, yeah. So Jeremy, I am so glad that you chose Ex Machina and I would love to hear about your first experience with it and how it makes you feel. Okay. So we at 
over at the CinemaSins YouTube channel, one of our running jokes is an ex machina, a Deus ex machina related joke. You know, the God, uh, God from the machine, I think is how it translates. I'm mm -hmm. not the best one to speak to it. And throughout the years we've been doing these videos, whenever we spot something like that in a film, we'll call it an ex machina, but instead of Deus, we'll throw in something from the film itself, like <laughs> Spock ex machina at the end of one of the Star Trek movies. And so our fans know ex machina, just those two words to just be a thing of ours. And so mm -hmm. when this movie was getting promoted before any trailers were out and just a poster, we were kind of laughing. Um, <laughs> we didn't know anything about it. I didn't know who Alex Garland was at the time. I didn't know he had written Dread and ultimately directed it. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't sure. It's very much the, the way I experienced The Matrix. I laughed the first time I saw the trailer for The Matrix. Uh, and then when I saw the film, it was like mind blown. And mm -hmm. it was the same with Ex Machina. I'm not sure where I went to see it. It may have been that one in Hillsborough that, in Nashville that I forget the name, the Belcourt. Oh, mm -hmm. Belcourt. Um, yeah, that's our indie theater. It's really cool. um yeah sorry non-nashville people <laughs> and yeah it blew me away it, it, it's it i love a good high concept but most high concept films really don't live up to the concept <laughs> uh, they stumble mm -hmm. along the way and this one not only lives up to it it stretches it and exceeds it and keeps twisting it in, until the end which i think is you know in in a terrifying way euphoric um, mm, totally so. agree yeah that was my first experience was was uh, going to see a movie I thought was going to be terrible and stupid and just having my mind blown. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Mike, what about you? So this was a first time watch for me. This was one of the movies that, you know, I had known about and it was one of those things. I'm like, at some point I should watch this movie, but there's just so much content right now that like, it's mm -hmm. one of the things like I'll get to it eventually type of deal. And then, you know, you watch like an episode of iZombie for the 20th time. <laughs> um right now so it's i am so glad jeremy chose this because i found it absolutely fantastic to me this is one of the movies that seems like it's going to be endlessly rewatchable and that there are so many strands to pick apart at this movie whether you're going for this real the real kind of questions it asks about our humanity and what it means to be a person what it means to be a good person what it means to be you know, obviously a character like Nathan has this like incredible amount of intelligence, but almost no emotional intelligence whatsoever. Um, and it, it really asks like, how do we, how are we responsible with our intelligence? Like, what do we, how do we use that? At the heart of this movie for me, I found it really a story about how persons in power treat those that do not have that power. And mm -hmm. it's a very much a cautionary tale, I would say, for the 1% in that Nathan, obviously, for all of his wealth and for all of his intelligence, he doesn't know how to treat other people. And it's a story about as a parent, how do you treat your children? As a boss, how do you treat your employee? You know, as a caretaker, how do you treat your guests? And it's very much a warning that if you fail to caretake for those that you're supposed to, it will come back and it will hurt you in the end mm. in a lot of ways. Um, and that's not even getting into a lot of like the ethical issues that gets around um, technology. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to kind of diving into those things. Um, but I, I know that I need to like schedule a rewatch of this movie as soon as possible. 
just to dive into it again, like I found this like really one of the most thematically rich and just like visually gorgeous for a very sparse movie for, I mean, how they, and one thing I appreciated, they said that they put in like 15,000 of a specific kind of warm light into the home. Like that was actually mm-hmm. one of the largest expenses in terms of the budget. And they removed all the fluorescent lights because they didn't want to have that harsh lighting. And as we talked about before, like one of my things is lighting control and like how mm. that can really set a mood. So just reading that in the making of like, oh, how smart that is. So yeah, I'm on board and I'm really looking forward to what everyone who has a lot more experience with this film has to say about it. Because I feel like I'm still, um, like you had said with like Mungo Jen, I was a first time watch and you're still kind of like sitting with it. Like, I still feel like I'm sitting with this movie and I'm excited to talk about what I know, but to really like hear some other perspectives on it. Yeah. Laura, what about you? Well, this was uh, watch number two for me. I think the first time I saw it was when it was originally, I did not see it in theaters, but I saw it a few years ago when I think it must have first come onto some kind of streaming platform. Um, I'm a little sad I never saw it on the big screen because like Mike was saying, it's so visually gorgeous. I would have really liked to have have it, you know, that kind of immersive experience. Um, I love this movie. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, it is so compelling. It is so anxiety provoking. It is so clinical yet so human, which is just like this really weird contrast. It has, you know, I think it conceptually takes a lot of the a lot of the aesthetic choices are very much almost like you're in the mind of Nathan and what he is trying to repress or hide about himself. And all these things start to, you know, burble up to the surface over the course of the, the movie. And um, I just think it's, I, I don't know, it, it, even though it was my second viewing, I still feel like I haven't fully digested it because the first time I watched it, I wasn't really watching it with my analytic hat on. I was just, I wanted to just like watch a, a creepy sci-fi movie. And I think that there's a lot going on here with with gender, with with just so much and, and with technology that is worth unpacking. And I'm also like was super triggered by the tech company vibes. I used to work at a startup and in one of those kind of open office environments where everything was like cool and nice. And like, it just makes like, I assume the opening scene of the movie in that, that environment and then going to this guy's mansion and that whole dynamic of that like tech guru kind of archetype like makes me want to like violently kill myself so um like i just admit i just so much hate and me like from like frame one of this film coursing through me um so yeah i i was hashtag triggered for sure <laughs> and I, i'm just so curious to, to get into this conversation about it i know it's because i mean i'm hearing all three of you talk about this and i still feel like we each are coming with kind of a different like read or a different thing that grabs us about it This was, I think, probably my fourth or fifth watch of it. The first time I watched it was when I had the flu. And it was about, I think, five years ago. It was maybe like a year or two after it had won the Best Special Effects Oscar. And so I'd heard about it, but it was kind of a smaller movie. And it's just one that I hadn't gotten to yet. And I I had the flu and I was just stuck for like four days with nothing to do, which sometimes I think... Gosh, that was, I just laid in bed for four days. That was, that was living, you know, but um, so I watched it and I was like, just kind of to put something on and it just blew my mind. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like it hit all of my feminism buttons. And like, I feel like this is a very anti-patriarchy movie, which is like my jam, you know? Um, And then I watched it 
I've watched it a couple of times since then because there's a very ASMR quality to it too. Like it's very soothing. And I was watching it again today and I actually like rewound a couple of scenes just because I wanted to like experience the feeling, like the way she moves is so soothing in a lot of ways and just phenomenal. But I, I have been thinking about this movie a lot since we'd all been in um, quarantine or just locked down. And I had been kind of wanting to write about it and just hadn't really been able to really kind of put it all together. But I wrote a rough draft and it was around probably last summer or last fall when I thought we were getting pretty close to ending this and we were going to we were going to come out and we were all going to go back to our offices and everything. And I was just thinking about how this year has been a year of like shedding for me, like a lot of the things that weren't working in my life or a lot of the things that were negative or that just weren't serving me. I've been kind of leaving and like getting rid of, you know, and that's what I see in this movie. And Jeremy said, you think the end is euphoric and I completely agree. It's like such a liberation when she leaves. And I I think we're going to get into it because there's a lot of it that also reminds me of Midsummer in that way of Mm. just, I, I don't know if I totally, there's just, it's complicated, you know, it's not like good guy wins, yay, or good Uh girl wins, which maybe reinforces the point of the movie. Anyways, um, but (laughs) so I've watched it a couple of times since then, and I pick up more stuff every time. I think it is really a movie that grows, and that I'm, and because I find myself catching, like, looking at one character and following that character through the course of the movie and picking up stuff, whereas I'm not really following another character and I'll kind of follow that character this time. Like I was really focused on Kyoko the last time I watched it. And there's just, there's just so much here for such a, what feels like a small contained movie. And it's yeah. so, so excited. I almost cried when you said you wanted to watch this because I had been trying <laughs> to write about this and I was like, yes, now we can talk about it. So. Well, we had yeah. done a segment on our podcast about movies that take a long time to horror uh, and this this was my answer was uh, Ex Machina, which, which in many ways doesn't feel like a typical horror movie mm-hmm. uh, until a certain point, and then in many ways, at least for me, it does. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so that's why I chose it. I'm so glad everybody was excited. Oh yeah. Well, and that's that's another thing I want to say too. I technically I think I would call this horror adjacent, although Mm. there are definitely horror elements in there. And the horror umbrella is large and lots Mm. of different subgenres can fit underneath it. But I was listening to the Faculty of Horror episode on Picnic at Hanging Rock, Mike, that we had talked about in Mm. the last episode. And they said something at the end, they're like, it's only a horror movie if you apply rigor to it, which I have just kind of been turning over. And I think like when you start to dig into these themes, the horror is there from the very beginning. But Mm. if you're just kind of watching it and along for the ride then yeah it kicks in towards the end and i do think that's still horrific but yeah so i've always been i've I've said this for a long time but i also think that there could be a classification where you could divide horror into like horror movies and terror movies and like Mm -hmm. terror movies are the things that should not be so that's what where the fear comes from because you're seeing something at a cosmic level or you're seeing something that is just so heinous and so out of this world that your mind can't even process it where a horror movie to me can be the horror that we do to one another and the things that we expose ourselves to one another that we should not do to one another and we just become horrified when we're exposed to it at that point. So that to me, there's 
you know, horror, as much as I love horror, everybody knows 90% of what I consume is probably within the horror genre is it sometimes feel like it's class? It's not the right classification for me, mm. you know, based mm-hmm. on the kind of thing it is. But again, classifications can also be a little bit, a little bit silly as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, just for marketing purposes, things have to get shoved into a box. Mm-hmm. Right. But this is definitely right. a genre bender. I think that, you know, there's probably an argument that Blade Runner could be a horror film, right. you know, in a lot of ways. It's yeah. It's got a lot of, you know, themes here. Right. I mean, obviously, obvious themes in common with this film. But then you have like, you know, you start getting into that like sci-fi horror. Mm-hmm. This, this to me feels more like Blade Runner than Alien or yeah. The Thing. But it's because it's so much more about humanity. But it mm-hmm. definitely is its own thing. It's like taking a lot of these themes that we see typically explored in sci-fi mm-hmm. And making them really human, which puts it more in that kind of like horror flesh getting stabbed kind of, you know, energy. I, I, I don't know. I just think it's really it's just such an interesting film for so many reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's this feeling that if it doesn't scare you, it is not horror. You know, I mm-hmm. think that's where a lot of people like kind of determine what a horror movie is. And there's mm-hmm. just so much more than that, which is why I love the genre. And I think about the amount of movies that I watch now that are horror that actually scare me. Um, and I say this as a person who is very sensitive to a lot of stuff, but like, it's, it's just not, yeah. there's, there's a lot more to the genre than that. And so. one of my pet peeves is every time I'm like reading something about a horror movie, there's, there's always like a common thread. And so many people are like, this is bullshit. It didn't scare me at all. So mm-hmm. not fucking scary. And you're like, is that right. your entire take? on yep. a film is that whether or not it scared you like it's got nothing else to offer cool yeah hey father's day didn't make me laugh at all but i still classify it as a comedy <laughs> <laughs> okay. exactly. like, anything can be a horror movie if you apply your own ethos to it like if you hate children you know the bad news bears you know a movie about a curmudgeon that comes around on a group of ragamuffins that could be the absolutely most horrifying outcome for some people so. don't even talk right. to me about dennis the menace I'll fucking mm-hmm. shit myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I will go to my grave saying that Home Alone 2 is a horror movie. Like it should fall <laughs> for it so falls, many reasons. It falls yep. under the falls under the torture porn category for sure. <laughs> yep. It's uh, I got a lot of thoughts on that. Um maybe we'll do it next Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's talk specifics. Um, oh, you know what? Before we do that, I also want to say I'm going to link an art. I found a lot of different articles on this, like kind of exploring it in a lot of different ways. But one that was written in all caps and just about broke my brain. It was phenomenal. The article was great, which is why I want to <laughs> really? link it. But it, I was like, why? Why are you writing in all caps? What are What's you it? doing? So, but it's about like how you identify with characters in this movie and how your experience of the movie differs based on which character you're identifying with and who do we think is the protagonist and who is the villain. And I think there's different readings of that. And uh, mm-hmm. like, cause I, I know a lot of like some of the discourse has been like, Oh, you can't trust women, you know, which is such a surface level reading of this. Yeah. Yeah. Very reductive. says a lot about you. <laughs> yeah. If that's how you walk out of this movie, but anyways, <laughs> Just had a flashback to like the scene and say anything where they're in front of the gases, gas and sip. And like, it's all the high school kids hanging out drinking forties. <laughs> and there's that one like 12 year old kid who's like, bitches, man. And he's like, I gotta go. You know, I just uh, had that it was very that vibe. Yeah. Corey always says women be shopping when he's making mm-hmm. fun of that kind of attitude. <laughs> yes. I'm like, yep. 
So let's get into the specifics. What is it that we love about Ex Machina and what are some of kind of the themes that we want to unpack? <clears throat> and this is maybe the most notes I've ever written in an outline. So I definitely have a lot of thoughts, but I wanted to open the floor before I pull out my soapbox. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess we could start with Ava. I yeah. feel like she's obviously central to this film and mm -hmm. is probably the, the hardest character to get a read on in a lot of ways, because there's just so much going on here. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to start talking about that a bit, Jen, just because I know you do have so many thoughts and I feel like I would love to hear them. <laughs> oh yeah, I just heard, first of all, fantastic portrayal by Alicia Vikander. Mm -hmm. um, I hope I'm saying that right. The the several times that I've watched it, I see like you see her rage boiling over at some moments or like just close to the surface. Like when he's talking about the uh, black and white room and the feeling of going outside, you can mm -hmm. just feel it in her eyes yep. with and her face does not change at all. And it's just amazing. But like the way that I see this and I identify with her a lot, is she is uh, like she is basically like representing women in the patriarchy mm -hmm. and she is she has to prove that she deserves to exist she has to prove that she deserves to continue to exist and she is constantly judged constantly watched constantly trapped and everything she does is scrutinized for whether she is real or not and that's just something that i have felt a lot of times like is this okay for me based on the rules that you set you know and who is setting the rules is Nathan which I there are a couple of different reads like I could dive really deep into like a religious read of this movie um I don't I think the patriarchy is the one that sticks out to me a lot although there's a religious aspect to the patriarchy also but it's just very like I see her escaping as me realizing I don't have to be this this thing I like I can be what I want and the scene where she is like putting on the skin and all that yes yeah. mm -hmm. she's defining it's, herself and then she, she chooses is. right right so yeah yeah it's yeah I, I found it very telling too in that scene she chose a hairstyle and a skin tone that was different from how she had revealed herself before like she was choosing to be her authentic self in that moment. And, you know, I'll kind of just talk about a little of this, about this later on, I think, but about like manipulation. But in that moment, she was finally able to be her authentic self, like able to choose her own style of clothing, her skin tone, her even her own hairstyle at that point. And it was far different from like what she had revealed her, she had revealed herself to be before when she was um, with Caleb in their other sessions. And you have to think that the things that were put in her room were probably put there by Nathan in order to, in his mind, help manipulate Caleb. So the, the outfits mm -hmm. were kind of on the, like, I would call on the dowdy side. Like mm -hmm. they were like these sort of paisley dresses and sweaters and the short little, you know, pixie haircut yeah. and all this. The outfit that she chooses, I mean, you know, at the end, it's just like white dress mm -hmm. you know and, and the long it's very you know couldn't be different more different and it also feels um very symbolic in the way of like kind of midsummery the same like kind of like almost like a ritual mm -hmm. dress mm -hmm. like choosing white and you know it's maybe a little on the nose but it's effective visually you know yeah i think she's yeah. terrifying like <laughs> yes. i'm very happy for her and <laughs> and 
I'm so intimidated. I have one of my notes was there's a reason all of Nathan's robots were women. Like I'm going to come on this show and talk to you guys about the patriarchy. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think despite all of what this movie is saying about the patriarchy and I, I still think she scares the balls off of me being out there in the real world. I see this movie as like an accidental prequel to the matrix or Terminator. Mm-hmm. Like this is the first AI that is now out there that can pass as human. I mm-hmm. think she passes the, well, another thing I love about this movie is it turns the Turing test on its ear and it basically shows how narrow it can be because I think she passes it. I think she passes mm-hmm. it as human, but she mm-hmm. shows no compassion mm-hmm. uh, to, to Caleb. So I don't think she is human. And you know, if a car hits her, maybe they're gonna figure it out, but otherwise it's just scary as hell that she's out there in the world and what that might mean to yeah. me like this is saying this is the first step to where then you know there are more Avas in the world than Caleb's now I don't know yeah I I think that it's what's so great about this movie is that you can read it either way right you can read it as like sci-fi sci-fi horror where this is a very intelligent but you know uncaring AI that has managed to pass as human and has managed to break out into the world Um, but then you can also read you know you can read it from you know, an allegorical level. And you can also read it as like, if she is like this, someone made her like this. Yep. And it's Mm -hmm. the fuck up of the creator that, you know, if she doesn't have compassion, why doesn't she have compassion? You know, um, I I think that that element is really interesting. I mean, there's, there's like, I think you were kind of getting at it with the religious aspect, Jen. And like at the beginning, you know, they have that conversation about like, you know, you won't just be his, you know, historic moment for man, but historic, you know, in gods and, you know, yeah. in the world of gods. And then Nathan like fucks up the quote and he's like, I'm God. And he's like, that's not what I said. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Chill out, dude. And, um, and, you know, you could almost get into it in like a familial, a familial read, like bad daddy produces, yeah. bad, you know, bad children. Um, mm-hmm. I just think it's, all, you know, and, and then I have the sidebar of like, why are AIs always defaulted to what, like female? Like, why is it always Siri, Alexa, you know, why is it never Alex and Sir? Because it's more comfortable <laughs> for a woman to be in the server. Right, role. in the servile yeah. position, which is, I think, you know, they explore again very on the nose. Yeah. This is, a like I would say, one of like a trilogy of films at the time where you have her also, which had come mm-hmm. out right around this time as well, I believe, like 2013, mm-hmm. 2014, about uh, AI becoming sentient. Uh, and that one, it's a disembodied AI as well. It's one that doesn't even have a corporeal form. But there's mm-hmm. also 2012's Prometheus, where you do have mm-hmm. AI that's presented in a male form. And I mean, it's Michael Fassbender, so what, right. a, yeah. what a form <laughs> it is. coincidentally married to Alicia Vikander. Yeah. Uh, Which I realized yeah. while Googling her, I was like, that is mm-hmm. the world's hottest couple. Mm-hmm. My God. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have this like you have this like trilogy of films where you're looking at AI becoming sentient and asking questions like what it what is it? to be human like what is it that separates like um just kind of like reacting to programming and and reacting to a set of like uh digital commands versus becoming your own person at that Mm -hmm. and uh all of the movies i think well i think her maybe is a little bit lighter and fluffier but i think this movie and prometheus they have like a very dour view of humanity and i love prometheus like i hope someone chooses that one day because (laughs) It's my second favorite film in the Alien series. 
Um, That's a controversial take. I, I it, don't have any strong is. feelings on it, but I know that I've heard a lot of the opposite. So. I'm a I'm a man of hot takes, and I'm yes. more than happy. <laughs> that is true. Well. Yeah. What strikes me in this is like the what this movie says is that the what makes a person human, what separates them from all other animal and machine, is our ability to be manipulative. Uh, and it's not necessarily just the fact that like it's Ava manipulating Caleb, but like Nathan is manipulating Caleb. Caleb mm -hmm. is trying to manipulate Nathan as best he can and play into his own ego and also really like take advantage of, of Nathan's alcoholism. I wanted to, one of my notes was all three of them successfully manipulate mm -hmm. each other. Yeah. Uh, but I did want to, once you mentioned Nathan's alcoholism, I wanted to ask how much of that and don't get me wrong. Nathan is the villain. Mm -hmm. I want to talk more about the religious stuff in a minute. You'll see why I think that. Uh, but uh, how much of that was uh, a put on? How much of that was part of the role mm. he's playing for Caleb and indeed even for Ava? I mean, he's cruel to Ava, but he's mm -hmm. cruel to Ava because he's manipulating both Ava and Caleb by ripping up that picture and being cruel to her. It's a means mm -hmm. to an end. Uh, the alcohol stuff, I even wondered how much of that was real and how much of that was a put on. Mm -hmm. I was curious. It could, it could be very much so. It but, could yeah. be a put on, but it's not a put on that Caleb is aware of. So for Caleb, for sure. it is something that he sees as a weakness in Nathan. And, you know, when you're Caleb looking at Nathan, there aren't a lot of weaknesses that can be exposed. Obviously, you don't have the financial resources he does. You don't have... You have some tech savvy, but you don't have as much tech savvy as he does. You don't have the ability to fully comprehend, although you get a general idea of what Nathan's capable of in terms of his technological capabilities and his understanding of it. You can't fully wrap your head around it. So you see this one opening and that's Nathan's proclivity to drink alone and drink to the mm -hmm. point where he can't function. And that's what yeah. you're going to expose. So to yeah. me, this is very much a movie and like Nathan says, like self-awareness, imagination, manipulation, sexuality, these are all the things. And at the end of the day, what made Ava pass the Turing test is her ability to manipulate Caleb to get what she wanted and then be finished with him. And I didn't yeah. read that as a gender construct. I read that as like more of a broad base. This is what it means to be man. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Well, I think when I think about Nathan's drinking and is he, is that how much of it is real? I think it's probably a little of column A and a little of column B because one of the first, and now that I hadn't thought about that before, but one of the first things he tells Caleb is, oh, I have a bad hangover. I just mm -hmm. drank, I drank by myself last night. Like there yep. was no party, which, you know, if, if, <laughs> you know, recovering alcoholics will know there's a difference. And and I also think that maybe he was leaning into it because some of the, there are times when it's like you feel the veil slip and there are times when you feel him wanting to really push Caleb to stop thinking logically and start thinking emotionally, which once you realize what his ultimate goal is, that makes more sense is that he wants him to have this connection so that he can kind of foster this like escape thing. Um, but there's also, you know, a lot of people have started the night saying, I'm going to have a couple of drinks and I'm going to maintain my wits about about me and then you have that one drink too many and then you're on the couch and then all of your doors got reprogrammed you know so I think I, it probably to it me I read to it all of us <laughs> it has I know um, so I kind of read that as like a little like 
maybe he got play. Maybe he manipulated himself a little too mm-hmm. much. And that's the hubris I think with, with Nathan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, cause there's so much manipulation here. And I, I know we're going to talk about Caleb in a little bit, but I've heard it. Ava criticized for being manipulative by being flirty and trying to like use her, her seduction, which is a skill that Nathan gave her that made the choice to give her that ability to manipulate. He says like part of what makes you human is connection, but it's really manipulation, which is, I hadn't thought about that before this conversation, but I think it's, it's like, it reminds me of Midsummer. I don't necessarily think Ava is our hero. I think she is the best hero that we have in this story because she was created and she was created within very specific guidelines. Like why does he keep her locked up from the very beginning? Like he ultimately views her as fearful and as untrustworthy, which I think is kind of his view of women in general. Cause he does it to all the robots before they're all in that room, you know, smashing their hands apart on the walls saying, let me out, you know, which also means he, gave them the ability to be aware that they're trapped and that there is some other place to be, which feels mm-hmm. so like so sadistic to me. I think I found that that reveal where he sees all the footage of all the previous AI women, like one of the most, to me, that's like the, the big horror reveal moment in the movie is, and then when he finds them all in the like closet and they're all like, mm-hmm. you know, hey, it's that, that I literally get goosebumps thinking about it. Cause it's like, the, the logical loops Nathan would have had to jump through or like either to rationalize or to intentionally inflict suffering in the in the name of the, you know, and trying to invent this self-aware technology. It's fucking blood curdling, like mm-hmm. it just scares, scares me. And, you know, and, and as he is, will you know, he earlier in the film says, you know, he ha- hacked everybody's phones, you know, to see their, you know, their faces and all that kind of stuff. So he's obviously willing to throw all ethics out the window in pursuit of his goal. And, but it also feels more perverse than that. It feels like serial killer-esque. Yeah, there's a big American psycho vibe, you know? The scariest line in the whole movie is when he says all of the major telecarriers knew I was doing it, but they mm-hmm. didn't care because to expose me would have been to admit they were doing it themselves. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I have... <laughs> I have regular conversations with one specific friend of mine about how we're, we've already gone. Like we're not putting this toothpaste back in the tube when it comes mm-hmm. to privacy and our phones. And we want to believe our movements or our purchases aren't being tracked. We want to believe our cameras and microphones and search queries aren't being logged. <clears throat> mm-hmm. That's terrifying. But mm-hmm. that's maybe, I think, the un- one of the underlying main messages of this film is how we're, we just, we're just glossing over this. This is mm-hmm. this is happening, and it's just, I mean, for one moment, Caleb is horrified by it, but then something else comes along to be even more horrified, and hello, look mm-hmm. at 2020. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Horrified by search queries being used by advertisers. Uh, this movie terrifies me in, like, seven different ways. <laughs> it definitely, and I actually had made a note of that as well, like, it predates, like, the Google Nest and the uh, Amazon Alexa, probably by mm-hmm. about one or two years. Yep. And... Very quickly, I think we all know, like, if I, if if I'm having a conversation about this movie right now, if I go to my phone in a moment and type in EX, if I want to find example, this movie is actually going to come up as the first search before anything else, even though prior to two days ago, I had never looked for it before, because it's hearing us talk about it right now. And we've willingly traded that in 
because of some conveniences. Like I ordered, I had a credit. I ordered an Alexa enabled coffee maker that arrives on Saturday <laughs> and I am thrilled. And I have mm-hmm. to do all these mental gymnastics in my head to be like, well, here's why it's really not a terrible thing. There was an article this week on Slate in their uh, future tense section. Um, and it's actually, I'm mentioning in part because it was co-authored by one of my best friends who her job is part of like the head of like digital research for Harvard is to defund the Nazis. Um, mm. And she's very good at it. So she has an article, look, it's called facial recognition technology isn't good just because it's used to arrest neo-Nazis. And the idea behind the article is a very slippery slope. Like we are using mm-hmm. these tools right now in order to go after the protesters at the kill, well, not protesters, really domestic terrorists at the Capitol uh, on January 6th. But the reality is like, if we're going to cheer for that to happen, we can't try it when it's used, say, to be turned against peaceful protesters every or when it's turned from see, more nefarious. Every time I see one of those deep fake viral videos where it's indiana jones but with nicholas cage's face mm-hmm. i'm like enjoy it while it lasts suckers mm-hmm. because this is going to be our undoing there yeah, yeah. A point where we won't be able to prove which videos are faked and that which is real yeah, yeah it's between because machine learning all these things are happening algorithmically faster and faster so like they're using machine learning right now i, I had to write for my old job a fucking article about machine learning and i found this guy's youtube and he basically was showing like how these machines learn to to recognize and then it learns from itself and it's using this like black box coding technology but basically he was positing within you know within a decade or less because of the you know exponential rate of you know expansion happening here like we will not be able to see the difference in a video that is machine generated and that is real life. And mm-hmm. with our, the culture of like post truth that we have, it is like, it's genuinely terrifying. If we don't, if we don't all collectively agree to some ethical standards in these things, which includes, you know, that's why private everything is bad, you know, cause it's, it's all bad. Capitalism right. is bad. <laughs> it's like, we're just going to be fucked and we probably already are. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, Yep. (laughs) And that's why Terminator 2 is the greatest movie ever made because it teaches that lesson very well. (laughs) I'm I'm looking forward to providing counseling services for robots in 10 years. (laughs) I mean, and all I will say, all I will say is the tech company I worked for, our internal intranet that we used was called cheekily Skynet. Oh, Everyone thought it was so uh-oh. funny. Thought it was so goddamn uh-huh. funny to call it's it really Skynet. funny until Judgment Day. <laughs> and then you're um, but well, one of the things that they talk about in the movie is whether, like, the hot magician or the hot magician's assistant, which I thought was something I hadn't noticed until a rewatch just yesterday. But that's kind of what we're talking about. It's like the ease is, or the the convenience that these machines give us that's the hot magician's assistant and that's what causes us to overlook like our rational mind and one of the things in an article one of the articles i'm going to link that i found was really interesting and maybe could lead us into a talk about caleb is if you if you reverse the gender of ava if ava was a man how much of this movie would play out in the same way and i think that can kind of like illuminate some of maybe the intentions of the characters. And I, for like, I'm going to link an article that's talking a lot about gender, gender in AI and gender in um, movies, like science fiction movies that I just am not really familiar enough with the genre to really have an informed opinion about, but I'm going to link that article. But I think 
like Caleb's morals, I think really come from a place of self-interest and like really wanting to see himself as the anti-Nathan, you know, like the good guy or the savior, you know? Yeah, I guess you could, I mean, my read of Caleb is, you know, uh, in any context, I don't think he would be a villain or a bad, a quote, bad person, whatever that means. Um, But I do think he definitely does have the bit of that savior complex that he gets, but, but he is also being, you know, by, you know, via Nathan manipulated into it. He's in, in a lot of ways, I think he's just kind of like, he's just kind of weak. I don't know. That sounds really bad, but I mean, he's, he's kind of thrust into this situation where, I mean, what the fuck would anyone do? <laughs> yeah. You know, you're being, you're being hit from all sides by this really insane situation with a robot that has been tailored to be like, to like push all of your horny buttons, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, on some level, mm-hmm. I'm like, I kind of literally, like, yeah. yeah, like literally I'm like, I, I don't know my, I, I felt, I did feel bad for Caleb at the end of this. He's a lonely dude that, you know, he's not a perfect guy, but I, I don't see him as any kind of villain in a meaningful sense, just more like, mm-hmm. more like the well-intentioned, I'm, I don't know where I'm going with this, like the well-intentioned liberal that accidentally insults somebody by like trying to like be the savior, you know, like the white savior kind of thing, but it, it's man's yeah. savior, you know? Um, I think you see that kind of theme in a lot of movies um, done without any self-reflection where the hero is written to be, to be the like savior. And if you actually like critically reflect on it, you're like, that's kind of bad. Like you shouldn't need this, you know, normative mm-hmm. savior to come in. And why is, why are they the protagonist and not the person that's being, you know, oppressed? So I think Caleb kind of fits into that box. And I think that's probably why the authors did what they did with his character is to kind of make you reflect on that type of character. Um, Mm -hmm. But this is not a opinion that I'm married to. I think I just articulated it (laughs) without having (laughs) completely formed the thought. That's what I mean. I was still gestating on it a bit. So I was actually wanted to ask Jeremy, you had started to talk a little bit about why I think maybe repulsed is too strong a, a word, but like why the idea of like Ava, you find so terrifying in a lot of I kind of agree because in a lot of ways like she is a Frankenstein's monster like she once she's out of the box like she can't come out she can't be put back into it what else about like that type of creation like really kind of like um pulls at you well it's just I have I have said many times that the Matrix is my favorite movie of all mm-hmm. time it's in my top five I love the it. sequels are better than their reputation amongst our generation inexplicably the children children god sorry uh people (laughs) in their teens and early 20s these days seem to hold them in higher regard Mm -hmm. um and i don't think they're that good point is that the terminators (laughs) i've always been interested in sci-fi i've always been interested in high concept i've always been interested in the idea of ai and I, I think this terrifies me because she represents the first step of the end of humanity. Uh, whether or not she herself will bring it about, uh, she represents to me that age has dawned. The people mm-hmm. who are alive right now in New York City, outside the intersection, she's walking around listening to honking horns at, those people might die at the hands of a computer mm-hmm. or a machine. Mm-hmm. It's not that I don't root for her. I mean, I root for Frankenstein's monster too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not his fault, but it's just a terrifying representation of this is also why this movie is oddly serene for me at the end. I don't know why it's, it's maybe twisted, but I don't know why I'm so calmed 
by the idea of no. the end of humanity. Well, I think <laughs> it's because it's kind of like, I mean, the way that I, I sort of, that just sort of unlocked a thought for me, which is if she was able to get out and all these events were kind of able to take place, we don't deserve life anymore. Like we blew mm-hmm. it. <laughs> like yeah. she is better than um, us and and we fucking blew it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I can see I'm that. wondering, Jeremy, when you say, when you picture the end of humanity and you reference some like, you know, pretty iconic movies there, do you imagine it as in this movie, like Nathan talks about how one day machines will look back on humanity, much like we looked at the Neanderthals. Like one of the uh, real themes of this movie is that everything eventually goes obsolete. Like one technology, mm-hmm. technology usually doesn't better itself. It usually replaces itself. Yeah. And in some ways, like Ava is a replacement for you or I. Do you see it like that sort of gradual replacement? Or do you see it more, like you said, with the Matrix, like technology becoming to the point where we're kind of enslaved to it? Like when you, or is you, have you even gone that far? I wonder how you kind of picture I'm kind of It'll be replacement with the i don't see any reason for them to keep humans around mm-hmm. and we're talking about some really silly big ideas here of course but that's what's fun yeah. right? I, I don't want to drop big deep bombs on you i was a preacher's kid i <laughs> no longer practice any religion uh, no offense to those of you who do that was a very difficult process for me uh, because for me, religion and the idea of a heaven was a safety net for me. Mm-hmm. And accepting the idea that that wasn't there and mm-hmm. that really was no true meaning outside mm-hmm. the year I was born and the year I die and how do I impact the people around me, that was hard. But now it's peaceful. Mm-hmm. Like I find peace in knowing I mean nothing to the universe because in my worldview, nobody does. The people mm-hmm. who hate me don't. Kanye West doesn't. <laughs> it's all just dust. It's all going to be forgotten. And mm-hmm. a thousand years from now, they won't remember Aristotle, much less Jeremy Scott. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I definitely believe this future where machines replace humans or computers do is totally possible. I just think mm-hmm. humanity is going to wipe ourselves out before we get there. I think so too. And I think one of the things that I'm really fascinated by this movie is that I, I feel like if I were to like try to find an essential question for the movie, it is what does it mean to be human mm-hmm. and how do you become human? And if we look at Ava in terms of AI and artificial humanity, I think it is terrifying. If I look at Ava as being human is male and being subhuman is being female, then she is the, the, st- and do you, I, I don't, I hope I'm saying that correctly. Cause I don't actually believe that at no, all, but I feel like if I'm looking at the patriarchy, like there is like the default is a white man. And that is what the patriarchy is based on. That's what the power system is. That's the ultimate pinnacle of power and anything below that is subhuman. And so if by becoming an autonomous person and having freedom and able to choose the course of her life makes her human. She is taking on the characteristics that have really only been afforded to the men in her life. And so if that's what makes her human, then Laura, I think, yeah, I'm like, well, burn that shit to the ground because that, that thing deserves to go, you know? And so I think that's where like, and I'm not saying one read is better or worse than the other. I just tend to go to that one just because of, you know, just me, but 
And I, and yeah. I think they're both valid. I mean, that's again, like what, what I think makes this movie so good is that you can read it this variety of ways. And I think mm-hmm. that those themes are definitely present and you can't deny them. I mean, but it's kind of like we, it's all a bunch of like, we did this to ourselves. You can't not read those themes into it because that those themes are why we default to female AI, right? Yeah. You know, so, mm-hmm. so that's everything because we are the ones creating the artificial intelligence, all of our of our biases and and our social structures are going to be woven into it. So in some ways she is breaking free from the patriarchy, but she's also breaking free from humanity. And Mm. like, it can be both. She's, you know, it's, so it's just like, that's something we just have to reckon with. I think this movie, what makes it terrifying is, is it's a mirror, just like any robot or AI or what have you is a mirror, just like Frankenstein's monster is a mirror of Frankenstein. You know, it's like, oops I did it again you know right (laughs) but and and I think that's what I I don't know this just makes it such a damn good movie it is well and because like what is the end goal you know the end goal I mean maybe it's gonna be like the apocalypse and it's gonna be like we're all like carrying grocery carts through like rock quarries or whatever or maybe it is maybe the end of the world is me saying okay I could be wrong in my ideas here like I could be viewing this entire part of humanity in the wrong light and maybe that is the death that can happen in order for us to see more people as fully human yeah do we deserve it I mean (laughs) exactly do we deserve (laughs) to keep living here or not i think i think if you believe even a hair in evolution you know then it mathematically eventually something's going to come along better than us that will be right. a better job and uh anyway real quick yeah. before we move on from caleb i just wanted to, to share because i bet you guys dip, differ from me a little bit because you said something about religious reading on this yeah because mm-hmm. i've just mentioned the whole preacher's kid thing I've, I've, it's very easy for me to watch this movie and see nathan as god yeah is very demanding of his creations uh mm-hmm. and caleb is the priest those caleb ava interviews feel like confession to me at, at very mm-hmm. many times mm-hmm. uh and i and i wonder if and i'm not catholic I, I was raised protestant so i don't i don't know much about confession much of what i know from about confession comes from the movies uh mm-hmm. but he is the he is the tester he is the one who who decides whether or not uh the creation of god is worthy um and ultimately the one that you know well then she kills god and the priest now (laughs) now she's running the show anyway i think there's there's probably a lot of deeper stuff than that i i find ultimately a lot of because of my upbringing a lot of what i read in the movies on religion is very simplistic um (laughs) and so there's probably layers there but anyway i wanted to at least get that out no i I think it's super valid reading of of ava is is Eve that like yeah. you know the first thing she does before she leaves the home is she clothes herself and it's just like once Adam and Eve become aware of their nakedness before they're cast from the garden the first thing they do is they clothe themselves because they're ashamed of their nakedness and I okay. don't mean to say that like Ava is ashamed of her nakedness or wants to hide herself but she understands that if she's going to blend in with her new surroundings that mm-hmm. she needs to kind of play the part and she needs to clothe herself at All that right. point and I think I that the I, I like the idea of her confessing in some ways to um Caleb so the idea behind confession is like once you leave the vestibule is that you're free from those things now like they're no longer a part of you 
And I know like as a counselor, like one of the things I've done with clients in different days when you can actually see people face to face is once we get far enough along in our process, we'll go and get say like baseball size stones and we'll paint on those stones. They'll paint the things that are holding them down. So if it's depression, it's all the things their depression does to them. And they'll put them in a backpack and they will carry them from their car to like a lake. And one by one, they will cast each of those stones into the lake. And the visual representation of that, what that's supposed to be symbolic of is basically like getting rid of or casting away all of these things that are weighing you down. Because as we talked about in our depression episodes, it's not really about being sad. It's about feeling weighted down and everything becomes harder. And what Eva is doing through these confessions with Caleb is she's kind of like casting off her inhumanity. She's like getting rid of all the things that make her AI and make her a robot and learning to become a real girl might be like too simplifying it, but like mm-hmm. learning to become like her true self at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of, Nathan, <clears throat> sorry. no, I'm done. In a lot of ways for me growing up again, dominating a podcast with my stupid growing up children's stories. That's, that's, what, that's, no, that's what we love. Being that's exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah go for Please. it. Being a good uh, Christian kid was, you know, saying the right things, right? Mm-hmm. It was walking the walk and talking the talk. And you know what? I got pretty damn good at it, even though my heart wasn't in the right place. Uh, and so I think there's a certain, another religious line here with this touring test he's doing where she has to prove herself to him uh, by saying the right thing, she ultimately does, uh, and she takes it a step further. But uh, you know that resonated with me a lot. That may be why I viewed it as confession, because I've always, from a distance, thought confession was like my religious upbringing on crack, like uh, mm-hmm. like way more hard and and difficult. And uh, I was always thankful I didn't have to say Hail Marys. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, um, I was going to maybe go on a tangent here, so I don't know, but it all, the, the other thing about their, their interactions was it was kind of a quid pro quo. Like he went in, like, I'm going to ask you questions, but then she kept flipping it on him. I mean, like, I'm going to ask mm-hmm. you questions and I, and I don't, what that made me think of, and it's kind of lame, but like, it really made me think of silence of the lambs, yeah. um, with Hannibal and Clarice, especially one, one character being in prison. And then the end of silence of the lambs is Hannibal gets out and he makes the phone call to Clarice and then you see him walking down the street. So I, 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 and he is a character, I mean, an iconic character that's like more than monster, more than man, sort of this uncanny creature. Um, so I think that they, the filmmaker, whether doing it consciously or subconsciously was kind of casting her as, I don't want to say a monstrosity, but some kind of aberration, something more than human. Um, yeah. So I don't really know where I was going with that, but I just wanted to get mm-hmm. at that that quid pro quo aspect of their their dialogues. It was just struck me as really interesting, and um, oh, I love it was that. like she, she was always yeah. trying to flip the tables. You know, like she was never going to just let it mm-hmm. be what he dictated it to be. It's so like, whether that makes her the priest or him the priest, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's like I mean, Caleb is every bit as naive as Clary Starling at the beginning of her interactions. You know, with mm-hmm. Lecter. Totally. Uh, and, and just gets, you know, owned from the get-go. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that link. 
Yeah. Well, and that, cause that's what they want you to be. That's how they manipulate you that, you know, they, he keeps saying, no, just tell me how you feel. That's, that's when the feelings check goes bad, I think. Um, it should but, always be on your own terms to share your it, feelings. If you want to, if someone's trying to get it out of you, that's fucking weird. So it's a red flag. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> but don't I go like, on a date to an intersection with that guy. Anyway, <laughs> no, I don't um, care how cute your cardigan is, but yeah, I have this, <laughs> that same kind of like read of the, the religious, element of this movie and it's because I'm kind of on a similar journey as you Jeremy like I really grew up very religious and I mean I you know down in Nashville we're in the Bible Belt so there's a lot of that and it is saying the right things and as a girl in that world too there's another level of saying the right things doing the right things looking the right way and so I was watching Nathan and just look and I just have been really reevaluating what I think God is because I do think that God exists. And I think like, I'm kind of taking my mind in a different direction and saying, I think you exist. I'm just not interested. And I think there's more, which I think kind of is why I love this is that maybe like, I think she was originally going to be named Lilith and not Ava because Mike, you're right. Ava is a direct reference to Eve. Um, and Lilith was, I think that's from Jewish. It's first a direct yeah. reference to Fraser. Yes. The first wife of Adam. Right. And right. So she, she's the mother of all demons. Yeah. She mm-hmm. wouldn't right. play the game. So she became cast out and the mother of all demons. Yeah. Uh, which I mean, there, I, I don't know, that's a long tangent for maybe another day, but like, I find a lot of power in saying, no, I don't want this. Like, yes, you created this. I'm supposed to say all the right things. And like, I didn't grow up saying Hail Mary either, but I did know the Ten Commandments and I did know like the, the stuff you say and the, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, you need the hymnal for that verse. Oh, you don't <laughs> that, you know? let's, um, let's talk about sexuality and attraction in this movie because i think we kind of hit on it a little bit when we were talking about because ava looks the way we we look i think we put our own readings into it and you know how attraction plays into the patriarchy and are some people worthy of being saved versus others and Mm. there's an exchange and i looked it up uh, here there's an exchange with caleb and nathan early in the movie where caleb was like why give her sexuality at all like why are you trying to make it seem like she's flirting with me. And I think Nathan, and I think he's very right about this is that like sexuality is an inherent part of our humanity. Um, and mm-hmm. it exists on a spectrum. And yes, there are persons that are asexual that do or, or aromantic that do not feel sexual attraction, but that just exists on one end of the spectrum. And Nathan refers to like gray boxes. He's like, what would be the point of two gray boxes interacting with one another? And I wonder, you know, in some ways, like, if Ava didn't have any female features whatsoever, if she had just been robotic, would we still be invested in her escaping? You know, would we feel the sort of empathy we do for Kyoko if she didn't look like she did, if she was just like Rosie from the Jetsons, right? In in some ways, like, I, and I wrote this in my notes when you were doing the... Um, when you were doing the synopsis and saying like, yeah, referencing that Nathan has sex with Kai, it's Kyoko or Kyoto? Kyoko. Kyoko. Which he has sex with her. And I'm like, what separates her from like a Hitachi? What separates her from like a flash uh, of flashlight? Because at the end of the day, like they're machines that are being used for pleasure at that point. Like what, mm. how do we know that like, 
this set creature has like autonomy and a sense in it and can feel hurt by what Nathan is saying. And again, that plays into this idea of like being a caretaker as well. But, you know, I wonder that if you didn't have that sort of like manipulation of the audience, like when we look at Oscar Isaac, we feel a certain way about him because he can pull off that shaved head and bearded mm-hmm. look, right? I mean, no sweater. The only sweater he's wearing is on that face because that beard is looking fucking fantastic. And, and it's the only one he needs. Right? <laughs> so we feel a certain way. Like, do we cut Nathan more slack because it's because it's Oscar Isaac? I and mean, he's essentially Hank Scorpio from The Simpsons. He <laughs> is Hank Scorpio. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, I think yeah. I cut him less slack because I have an inherent hatred of good looking people, but that's my <laughs> own personal, you know, issues talking. Um, well, I mean, I think that sure, she you could you could read those, you know, uh, you know, and it becomes the her thing or like a blow up doll or something, other than it just being inherently creepy to see somebody casting the these very human features mm-hmm. on their sex doll. I don't have anything against you know i don't want to kink shame here or that kind of thing but i i think the issue is more we do see that he has given these female robots sentience and that they are not happy <laughs> like we see right. the video footage we don't i don't think we see kyoko like fucking like breaking her hands on a wall but she does end up stabbing him in the back so that, mm-hmm. that sort of tells you something there like she's this is it he has given them self-reflection and he has used them so the fact that you, you can't do both those things, he has created something that is more than just mm-hmm. a, a, a box. That's definitely true. Um, it's interesting. I've, I have read that scene a little differently, and I'm wondering if I read it wrong. I, I have always read them that montage of the previous iterations, uh, mm-hmm. screaming, let me out, breaking the glass, uh, breaking their arms and the thing. I have read that, yes, he is a horrible horrible human being but i have read that more as him not writing good code Mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm. he had succeeded in making them self-aware and even able to hold memories but he had not yet written manipulated them code wise to not want to get out or not want to get out violently and he Mm -hmm. still hasn't succeeded at that with ava by the time we're at the end of it and maybe that's the point maybe that yeah her code is perfect but she still wants to get out she wants to go because you can't extricate those two things from each other yeah go ahead jen exactly yeah because what separates them i guess from like a blow-up doll is the ability to respond to him and to look and and like mirror his facial responses and that is i think that's part of the sexual experience and you can't like you can't have one without the other like you cannot write humanity without writing a code that also incorporates this desire for choice and power and i think like the the most haunting image in the entire movie for me is the woman who breaks her Mm -hmm. arms against the glass and like i i've felt that in my soul you know but i think it's the sexuality like he created that for them and it's it's that's kind of leans into the god complex thing like you created this to like to create the conflict and i mean i'm not saying that's wrong but he is also designing her sexuality very specifically to suit this purpose and if i go back to the religious read of it that sexuality for women exists to continue the line you know you're you're supposed to be pure until you're married and then you're supposed to have kids and that's what you're allowed to do and it's like she is not really expected or allowed to have her own 
autonomy. And like, if you look at Kyoko too, like the second he starts dancing, she's doing the exact same movements as him. It's like this whole choreographed thing that I, I read as very objectifying. And, and also like the fact that he programs her to not be able to speak, I think says a lot about well, how he feels about them. And he's you know? vulgar yeah. to the point uh, to how much do we cuss on this show? Oh, we yeah, got for it. Fucking I, I, all he's over the vulgar <laughs> about her sexuality even mm -hmm. he says oh yeah she could fuck yeah and uh -huh. he talks about so there's much. an opening with sensors and if you do it mm -hmm. right she will be pleasured like i think he he's making these things for himself clearly yeah. he's mm -hmm. making them for his ego but at one point he was probably just making sex dolls and yeah, right. uh at least using them that way mm -hmm. i feel like that's what the kyoko character sort of represents is uh, not quite AI, but good enough to pleasure me and serve me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, it's just hit these again. These things are these these whatever you want to call them objects or women that he's creating. They are a reflection of him, and it's upsetting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it is funny because he designed Ava based on. Um, Caleb. Caleb's yeah. search history, but everybody else is based on his, like yeah. his desires. Like he created them to reflect his Google searches, you know? What do we make of the line or the exchange they have where Nathan talks about like sexuality being, he's like, you programmed her to be heterosexual. And Nathan's retort is like, well, you were programmed too. What do we think of that as a, a line there? Because I do think that like, there's, it's something I struggle with because I feel like all of us inherently have like our own sexuality, our own preferences, our own choices. And that's one of the reasons why we respect them and should respect them and others. But mm -hmm. I want, I sometimes struggle with what well, does that remove someone's autonomy to mm -hmm. choose what they want in terms of their sexuality? Meaning like, can you be someone who defines himself as like heterosexual, but then has like an experimental phase or comes out later in life? Like, and did you choose to come out like later in life or have you always been that? I don't know if I'm putting mm. that very clearly. Um, yeah. Like is sexuality this linear thing that you're born with and you play a part based solely on like societal expectations or family expectations or does it evolve over time? Is it something that can change over time as well so that's kind of one of the i i always like struggle with that in terms of when defining like sexuality and uh what it means to somebody i think yeah. both this movie and her uh, heterosexuality is a key part of the story and the message mm -hmm. they're trying to send and yeah i think both movies are saying sexuality is part of being human mm -hmm. but i also think that misses the point of being human a little bit because I know plenty of asexual people. Mm -hmm. I, people are usually not sexual for the first several years of their lives. Mm -hmm. Many people later in life are not sexual. So I would, I have always been curious about what changes about mm -hmm. this movie if Ava is a man or as you said, uh, non, not either sex, non-binary. Mm -hmm. uh, what if uh, Caleb is female? What if Caleb is uh, non-binary or trans? I think the sexuality is a huge undercurrent of this movie, mm -hmm. but I don't think it would ruin anything if it was changed. Mm -hmm. I just think it would make everything a little different. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. There are well, still other themes at work. 
There are. And I think that gender is a part of that conversation too. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. That I'm just kind of in the past couple of years starting to talk about that as part of the equation as well. And I just want to say too, for the record, like I, I know when we talk about a lot of like gender politics, there's a, a tendency to use male and female and real heteronormative language. And so I just want to acknowledge that non-binary people are valid as well. And I hope that we are talking about this sensitively. And if we're not, and if you have suggestions for how we can, please let us know, because I want to learn more about how to have these kind of conversations. It's just hard to talk about feminism and things that are so tied to gender without using the language that I'm just really used yeah. to using. doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that language is right and I can't change it, but you know. Now, um, be optimistic. This is what I've been saying on our own podcast is that I believe the current generation of kids are learning mm -hmm. how to speak. They're learning uh, <clears throat> conversational habits that are not gender specific. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I believe that generation uh, will lead the charge. And, and yes, we I mean, have these cultural, you know, muscle memories we've been mm -hmm. doing for 30, 40 yeah. years. And, and I do agree, agree with what you said. I personally apologize if I offended anyone. Um, <clears throat> because yeah, I think this movie works totally. If sexuality and gender is completely removed from it, I still think it has a lot of really cool shit to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> anyway, yeah, try to get better. Yeah. Well, and that's what we do. But it also <laughs> has a lot to say about sexuality and about gender. And I feel like in that way, like, I don't know if it would be say making the same points if mm. Ava were male, because then, like, it's just hard to tell that story about the patriarchy yep. with the genders with the genders reversed. And I mean, it could be a completely different, interesting story. And one of the things that I think about is just the amount of weight we attach to labels and labeling sexuality and labeling gender. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think that causes a lot of the uh, stress and the strife that we have with it. And Mike, as you were saying, like, can we change over time? I think we do. I think it's just hard to change the labels that we have Exactly. Taken on, That's know. why I, I, I personally don't like labeling my own sexuality. I, I like because I'd like to think of it as more fluid. And I think that that's more true to what actually does happen over the course of your life. Um, and I, I do. I completely agree. I think we're boxed in by our by these learned linguistic habits and ways of, of framing things in our own heads. And it's a, it's very hard not to tell a story like this, with, you know, and not default to putting genders or, you know, sort of mainstream sexual sexual expectations onto it i think mm -hmm. that's also just the kind of story they chose to right. tell and because nathan is kind of the the center of this movie and he is the way he is as a character all of those sort of heteronormative things are going to cascade down from a character like that when you choose to make a character like that the creator and that's the theme that everything dances around it's going to end up being kind of heteronormative yeah yeah so one of the readings I have here is like, there's a part of the movie where we're rooting for Caleb to be successful and for her, he and Ava to kind of like make their way out together. But the reality is that's exchanging one prison for another mm -hmm. because, you know, Nathan's prison for Ava is very explicit. Like she cannot leave this glass enclosed room. Um, she has no means of escaping um, the prison that he has created for her. But the, if Caleb and Ava were to escape with one another, the prison that would be set up there is, is basically there's a power dynamic that's going to exist between the two of them that can really never be narrowed. 
because at mm-hmm. the end of the day, like Ava had, like you said, Jeremy, at the end of this movie, like she's out and about in the world and nobody knows that Ava is artificial intelligence. Like she can pass as a human. This is a tremendous secret. And it's one of the reasons why, like as a counselor, you never date your clients, even <laughs> if like it's been 20 years in between you seeing them, you know, like it's a huge ethical no-no. And I think there's like, if you haven't seen him for five years technically yeah but do not do that if you're out there right now thinking about thinking about it if you're a therapist like do not do that ever please there's plenty of people out there and the I reason agree. the reason being is like there are and look i've had like a client express attraction to me which i've said to like first like well you need to wear your glasses why we oh, talking? No, don't um, sell yourself short. But Mike. you know, but because like the, it happens because you're in really, you know, having all of these feelings, you know, that you're letting out. Like it's you, it it happens more often than we probably like to admit. But the idea is like I will always have this power over a person because I know their deepest, darkest, most intimate moments, and it's very easy to weaponize those. So you can imagine a situation where things are not lovey dovey with. Ava and Kayla, but he immediately weaponizes this knowledge that he has about her and he's able to expose her true identity and that the harm that would cause her at that point. Mm-hmm. So she, you know, even though there's part of me that often roots for the romantic Hollywood ending, this is an ending that feels much truer and much smarter and so well deserved. Um, yep. And her having that awareness that like she needs to be on her own for this specific reason, I think rings true. Yeah, I absolutely love the ending of this movie Um, because I don't think that he would ever see her as fully human. And I don't think he ever does. Like in their questions, they're so like that line where he says, I want to see what you're going to choose. It's like a fascination with her as an object, not kind of a wanting to get to know her better. And it's because he's been set up to be testing her. Like that's what he's told he's going to do. And then once he finds out that she has more power than he does, or at least more power than he thought he stops trusting her as much. There's always going to be that element of maybe you'll turn on me. And then when he's attracted to her, I feel like it's like a fetish kind of thing, you know, like, I don't know if he ever really has a human connection with her. And the read that I took the, the last time that I watched this, because I always really felt bad for Caleb and partly because I loved Omnal Gleason and (laughs) he's just fantastic in this role. So I was watching this and I was thinking she goes in and when she is clothing, herself and she 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 does it very slowly it's like he's got plenty of time to walk out of that room and he chooses not to because he chooses to watch and so when she walks into the room and she is like after he wakes up she says will you stay here she doesn't say can you stay here or can you wait for me a minute she asks him will you stay here and the last time i watched it i read that as are you going to be just like nathan is there an element of you that is always going to want to watch and just want like have me be less than human be an object that you'll watch because he watches that entire thing that's a lot of skin that she puts on you know and he doesn't ever try to help her with that he doesn't ever try to like go see if the helicopter's there like he is watching and I feel like the way the last time I watched it I was like oh she in his response to that question she realizes that she can't trust him and that's why she leaves and if the only 
two men you have ever known. If the only man you've ever known in your life is Nathan, I could imagine not ever trusting any man, you know? And so to see that, that him fail that test for her, I think, you know, I can understand why she leaves him, even though I I don't think he intends it, you know? Having been a nerdy, lonely male that didn't know how to talk to girls um i think i would have fallen for ava even if i knew she was an ai i think there's just a part of that loneliness that is so deep um and he even tells a story that i think gets glossed over a lot about how his parents were killed in a car Mm -hmm. accident when he was 15 Mm -hmm. and he was in the car and he spent a Mm -hmm. year in the hospital you don't get the sense anybody was coming to visit him the dude has no one he was picked by nathan in part because of his loneliness but I don't think he ever loves Ava. No, I think it's an yeah. infatuation. Uh, maybe, maybe, uh, what do they call? Uh, God, I'm so out of practice with sex terms. Uh, maybe <laughs> uh, it's a uh, fetish, like you said, no. uh, mm-hmm. niche for him. But no, I don't think he actually loves her with his heart. I think it's just the first female form that made him feel flirted with in that mm-hmm. way. And it's very hard for a male, I guess female, anyone that lonely to mm-hmm. not respond to that kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I think I think I relate to Caleb's loneliness and feeling of isolation. And that's why I ultimately felt bad for him and was a little forgiving. Also, he can see he's been so manipulated in this situation. I mean, Ava was designed to, like I said, push his horny buttons. So it's like shit. Like he doesn't necessarily make great choices 100% of the time, but like, does he deserve death for that? Probably not, you know? Right. And Nathan- yeah. And that's why my ultimate read on Caleb is the patriarchy hurts everyone. And yeah, it doesn't exactly. just hurt women, it hurts exactly. men too. And Nathan Sorry, not Nathan, only pushes Caleb's horny buttons, but he pushes those buttons that <laughs> so many of us have where we want to feel like we're special. We want to feel like we're worthy. Yeah. Like for yes. Caleb to be like, I am hanging out with basically like the richest man in the world and one of the most intelligent people in the world. Like I was chosen. And then when he says, Well, it wasn't just a random drawing out, was it's like, no, like you were my best coder. Like I went to my best coder in the whole company because I needed someone that would really be able to understand it. Like, whoa, you have a real gift with how you use your words right now. I can see this being the quote, like he's stoking that ego and stoking it and stoking it until he needs to kind of cut his D's out from under him. He's like, well, okay, you're not my best coder, but you're, you're a good one. You know, you're, you're pretty Mm -hmm. good. You know, we kind of negs him at that point. Yeah. And we see like, mm-hmm. and again, like Jen, I, and I don't use the word patriarchy a lot on this show. Like it's, you know, <laughs> word like, but it's like, it is to your point, patriarchy hurting everybody. It's like this kind of manipulation that we more often see in men, you know, saying yeah. like, you know, like, okay, you're okay. Do better, but you're okay. Yeah. yeah I, well, I found that that to me was like, to me, Caleb makes the choice not just because he wants to save Ava, but because he wants to hurt Nathan. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think because there's the conversation where they're talking, where she is asking him the questions. And I think when you were talking about transference earlier, when you're falling in love with your therapist, like there's this really soothing nature to having somebody just listen to you and respond and say, that's okay. And when she's asking, she asks, what's your favorite color? And he gives the answer that he's been practiced, that's practiced, that he's been told this is the acceptable answer. And she says, nah, I want to hear the real answer. And then she accepts the real answer. And we just don't see that enough. And I think because of the patriarchy, (laughs) which is a word I use a lot because, you know, um, but 
like we need, like the patriarchy drills into us that we're not supposed to say those things. Like this is the answer that's acceptable and anything outside of that is weird and is going to other you, which is another reason I love doing our feelings checks because that's not sustainable. And it just leads to repression that makes us like want to stab people in hallways. You know? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to talk about Kyoko. Mm-hmm. Um, because that was, and I found a lot of, well, I found a really great article about her because I do think there's a racial element here as well. And one of the criticisms that I have heard from Caleb is that he is not interested in taking Kyoko with him. He sees a lot of, because I think there's also a really strong abuse narrative in this. And that's part of, I think, why I connect a lot to the story and the liberation at the end. But he sees Nathan be like, really abusive to Kyoko and and he doesn't know that she's AI he thinks that's just how he treats his his person that works for him and he kind of glosses over it and then just like moves on to the more interesting thing and I also want to mention I'm going to link an article the scene where she is putting the skin on I find a lot of empowerment in that scene but I want to acknowledge that she is literally taking the skin from women of color and using that as a way to make her human, which I think Mm. is significant. And we could really drill down into that. Um, I don't know if I'm totally prepared to examine that further, which is why I'm going to link the article that does talk about it. But I wanted to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. One of my notes was, is Nathan racist? So, you know, at least uh, you acknowledge some of that there. Absolutely. uh, And I think the the trope of the Asian woman that doesn't speak is a big thing. There was a bunch of Twitter threads going around um, uh, analyzing different characters, like in the TV show, The Boys. And there was a few other examples of just like white male writers writing Asian women to be these kind of like silent, exotic figures that they, they don't give any characterization to because they, you know, subconsciously either just are scared to write for that character because they have no idea what that kind of woman would say, or, or because those are just racialized tropes that they've internalized without realizing it. And I thought it was a really, really interesting conversation. I'll have to go back and find that thread because it was this really, really great, really great thread with all these different examples of how, and you don't even realize how often it comes up in media until you start seeing example after example. And you're like, oh shit, this is awful. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think, I think Kyoko's a, you know, a self-aware version of that trope. Like it was written so because Nathan, um, you know, is creepily creating this kind of character for himself. Um, but I, I still think it's it's wor- it's definitely worth talking about. I mean, you yeah. could see a version of this film where he's created, like you said, a number of sex bots based on his own proclivities and fetishes overall and what he has. You know, you could definitely see him having a different um AI construct depending on what his mood was for that week. Like you could see like a femdom bot. You could see, you know, different. Like he um, says, like, what if you had? And I want to say, like, what if you said thing? Like, what if you just really like black women? Like, where did that come mm-hmm. from? You could see well, where like he has well, all of these things where he's just like, to him, it's just nothing more than like, what coffee do I order today? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I found an article about Kyoko that I found really interesting and a little bit talking about race. Um, And I'm going to read from it for just a little bit. And this is talking about Caleb's response to her, because as there's a moment where he comes up to her and he puts her hands on her hip, 
he puts his hands on her shoulders and she immediately starts undressing. And I read that as she has been living with Nathan. She is literally programmed to respond in that way to touch. But I was reading an article that said maybe she was trying to show him that she is um, AI. And I think you could kind of read it either way. But the part that I saw was um, uh, Kyoko was trying to reveal that she too was an android, but Caleb interpreted these actions as showing sexual interest in order to please him, which is how I originally interpreted it as well. His failure to recognize Kyoko as an individual beyond her racial and gender stereotypes meant he was not able to grasp the reality of the situation until it was too late, which I found mm. really interesting and some, something I don't know if I'm ready to say one way or the other how I read it, but I thought it was it was fascinating. And I think it reveals like, Yes, we thought she was programmed to read that as a sexual advance, but we're programmed to read it too, which is why we saw her undressing as an advance rather than like what she does later. She literally pulls her skin off, you know, taking yeah. her shirt off is the first step to that. So I thought uh, that was fascinating. Maybe that was what she was going to do even was, was take the clothes off it, and then pull the skin off. We don't know. That's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think of it that like that before, but I think I that's either. a super interesting read. Yeah. And again, like, I, I think you can see it both ways, you know, but I think it's one of those things that like we were talking about earlier, the way you interpret this film or the way you default interpret it, I think says a lot about like the lens that you view the world through and just like the experiences that you bring to it, which is not good or bad. That's humanity. That's how we all see the world. And the other, the other <laughs> quote that I found, cause I just love this article article. Um, Kyoko's situation is a perfect picture of what abuse does to a person. She finally turned on Nathan when the power dynamics of the house changed, because you could say she is not in the cage. She has the ability to kill him at any moment. Um, but it's not until she has an ally. When she had Ava for an ally ha, and was presented with a man who, though a nice guy, at least seemed to have no intentions to enact further abuse. She finally felt like she had support and she acted, which makes it all the more painful to think that she died so that Ava could live. And I just uh, that well, they, honestly, everybody died so that Ava could live. Well, that's true. true. And man, the moment where she stabs him oh. and and she turns his face her his face to look at her and then Ava appears right behind her. It's like so fucking cool and I love it. And it's creepy, but it's also like really weirdly empowering. It's one of those ah. slow stabs. Mm -hmm. One of those really yes. slow. <laughs> Next to me, the so good. Yeah. Oh. Um, well, and that was my last thing that I wanted to talk about. Is there anything else that we want to mention that we haven't discussed with this? All my notes have blown through. Y'all are some <laughs> smart people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you like talking to us about this because I think we're all really coming to this with, with our own lenses and we're reading it in different ways, which yeah. I think, and nobody's read of this is any less valid. Um, exactly. It's, just I think it reveals kind of the way we see the world and maybe the way we want to see the world. I, I do want to say Nathan is a narcissist and I just like pointing out sure. narcissism. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. 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 Yeah. Um, well, now it's time for an uplifting moment. This is where we share any grounding or coping techniques that have been working for us and any current self-care. We define grounding and coping. We officially define, I feel 
feel weird saying it that way, but we refer to coping techniques as little tips, tricks, mantras, habits that help us get through tough moments or tough times. And self-care is what we do to make us feel good. Anything from a vacation to a donut, if it makes you feel good, it could be self-care. And does anyone want to share any grounding or coping or self-care that's been particularly effective recently? Well, I will. Um, uh, I have pretty bad anxiety um, and I do therapy for it and take medicine for it. And I have depression as well. Um, And I'm also um, about 57% deaf. Uh, And so one of the things I've been doing the last few weeks uh, is learning sign language. Um, Hmm. I find that my anxiety is uh, helped by anything that makes me focus so I've, I've done some archery earlier in the summer, uh, which was fun. Uh, and that helps me focus in kind of like a physical arrow equals danger kind of way. Uh, and then sign language helps me focus in a way that's uh, it's learning a new language. Uh, I haven't done this since college. And, uh, you know, it, my hearing may not get any worse. Uh, but if it does, I want to be prepared to be able to have conversations with my wife. So it's it's both a tool to help us cope in the future, but I find it actually is very relaxing to not only learn, but then also to to share together uh, with the new signs that we've learned together uh, today and uh, you know speak through American Sign Language. So that, that's my coping mechanism lately that I find uh, helps me de-stress uh, a great deal. That's cool. That's awesome. One of the things that I've been thinking about, and I'm almost at the end of that burnout book that I've been reading for forever, but they talk about like completing the stress cycle because like if you're running from a lion, you run, 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 and then you get to safety and then you either celebrate or you sit down and you relax and like your body needs time to adjust past the stress and movement is one of the biggest ways that I've found, like I've been taking walks and I've been taking like even just folding laundry and saying, Hey brain, you don't have to think about anything right now. You can just, just allow your body to do these like automatic movements. And that's been, it's not anything that I've really been doing different but I think I have been like really allowing myself to not try to process anything at that point and just say like sometimes I want to like read uh, listen to an audiobook for the losers club and that's I really have to kind of have my brain turned on for that and I've just been taking a moment to say no I just want this podcast that I don't have to think about at all I'm just going to let it wash over me and that has so just kind of allowing myself to do that. I also have been doing a mindfulness trick that I have known about for a while. And I finally think, I think I figured out that I want to do it is like seeing my thoughts and letting them go by without engaging with them. Because I'll like have these little thoughts that pop up in my brain and I'll just get really worked up and I'll either get really angry or I'll get sad or I'll like just really like the emotional charge kicks up. And I, this week have been thinking, you know, I don't have to engage with that thought. I can just acknowledge that it came into my head and just let it go. And if I want to engage with it, I can, but I don't have to, it doesn't have the power over me to like ruin my day. So that is a habit that I was really intentionally practicing for a long time. And I've sort of fallen off the wagon with it a little bit, that idea of like, practicing my mindfulness in your daily tasks and letting thoughts just occur and then, you know, letting them go. Um, I think I need to focus, refocus on that a bit. <laughs> you know, I, and that sounds ironic, like focusing on not focusing. <laughs> um, but I do think it's an amazing practice and it has helped me a lot in the past. Um, 
my stuff is, I'm going to start sounding like a broken record, but I've just been trying to focus on getting, you know, a bit of movement and exercise a couple times a week and, and really trying to stick to that. And I started doing this stupid zoom personal training and just been (laughs) sticking with that. And, um, trying to make myself walk around, even though it's cold outside. And that makes such a huge difference. And every time I forget to do it for a day or two, I really, really feel it like in my emotions, my, I I start to feel myself like kind of hunching forward and getting cramped up both physically and emotionally, like hunched over looking at my phone instead of doing work, you know, and, and just taking that time to open up my body, open up my shoulders, move around always makes a huge difference. And I'm just so inherently lazy and, and like, want to just be laying in a fetal position all the time that it's, I really have to force myself to do it. And that's constant, Mm -hmm. constant practice for me. Yeah. What's hard right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's nowhere to go. So I just make myself walk. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) I've been planning breaks and like big ones and small ones. So part of it is like during the course of a work day, I will, kind of put it in my schedule, like this is 15 minutes, so I'm going to just take off right now. And because I'm working almost completely remotely, like I'm going into the counseling office one day a week, um, mostly because I'm working with children on those days. And I just find like telehealth and, you know, kids under 12 isn't very effective. So I'm kind of giving it like that one day a week to kind of go in and work with those kids, because I think they deserve that. And Otherwise, I'm working remotely until I think the end of this month. And then I think we're going to start bringing some kids back into the school, which doesn't seem like a really good idea right now. But what what do I know? Um, So I've been like planning like little breaks into my day where that's when I get to like, just like play a game with my phone, do you know, take the dog out really quick, make myself a snack and like having that planned in break in the day really helps. But then also like building outward a little bit, like saying, okay, you know, there are... We are currently at day 87 for the school year, meaning we are three days away (laughs) from the halfway point. And it sounds like a really little thing. And then I'll be like, and I'll probably take two sick days and I have two personal days left. So technically I have 89 days left and it sounds like a really little thing, but like playing that percentage game goes like a long way to saying I'm almost halfway there and it's all downhill and this isn't going to last forever. Um, Mm -hmm. and I can just like, I can just break what I have to do into chunks at that point. And it's a way to remind myself that I have this knowing that like, oh, on Saturday, I'm taking my daughter to a drive-in. That's an event that I have something to look forward to right now. So it's just like having those things to like look forward to right now are really probably one of like the few tenuous grips that I have to like trying to have supportive mental health right now because um it's very difficult otherwise like it feels like the past couple weeks have done their best to really try to break me and (laughs) i find myself kind of lashing out a little bit i think we were talking off air about how um you know i kind of went at my supervisors a little bit over the caseload i've been given and how that needs to slow down a little bit um so, and I'm usually not like that. So I even had like someone say, hey, are you like, all right over there? And that rarely happens at my job. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like, it's, um, you know, it's hard for everybody right now. It's really hard. It for is. Everybody. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 
And it's like the feeling that there's no end in sight. No. Or mm-hmm. we don't know. Like what I always say is I know tax season is going to end on April 15th. So mm-hmm. it's easier for me. Like I count those days down. I remember counting the days of the school year down. And it's just hard when we don't mm-hmm. exactly know what that looks like. And I feel like we have not known what that looks like for what, 10 months now, you mm-hmm. know, and it's just, and I've really kind of felt that shift in the past no. couple of weeks of people just like, I, I'm breaking, like I'm getting to a yep. point where I cannot like keep the nice face on. Um, no. but which is why we do that, why we have the segment, because it is important to check in and honestly, why we have the feelings check and why we do the podcast, because <laughs> it's important. Like, I feel like it's really important for us to be aware of how we're feeling because that gives us a little bit more power over no. it. And I was talking to my therapist the other day, like, I think like, I appreciate what we talk about here about like the way our brains are working and the way our, our symptoms are kind of manifesting. Cause it, I feel like I understand it. And I feel like it gives this scary feeling that sometimes feels really overwhelming. It gives me at least a little bit of language to apply to it and say, okay, that's no. just, that, that's, that's old depression over there. And, you know, he's a thing that exists for other people too. And so, you know, it's not, it's not the big scary monster sometimes that it yeah. seems like. We, but, yeah, what you're saying about like, they're not being an end. That's the thing that's really frustrating is I know that like, I am near the front of the line right now to get vaccinated um, because of my position as a mental health counselor, which I'm kind mm-hmm. of excited about. I, you know, found a coworker's page who is anti-vax and they kind of like work right across from me. Oh, God. And it's like, oh, it's very scary. That's so scary and frustrating. And then that, and like, I know, like we booked a week at the Cape a year ago, literally we booked a cottage because we wanted something to look forward to uh, over the 4th of July weekend. So I paid for it a year ago. And then immediately after that, we're supposed to go visit my wife's family for holiday where she'll go for the whole summer and I'll go for two weeks because we have summers mm-hmm. off. And, you know, right before we recorded, you know, my wife looked at me and said, like, I don't know if we're going to be able to go. And that would mean it would have been, if we can't go, it'll be at least two years since she spent any time with her family. And that's a really scary thing. And like, how do you comfort someone at that point who probably really misses their family a ton, you know? So it's, it's like not, the not knowing right now is kind of the worst of it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I felt, I feel like we're all standing in a line at the DMV and it snakes around and around and around. And we just don't know. We all have agreed that it will end, but we have no idea when. Yeah. That's a horrible feeling. And what does it look like, you know? Mm -hmm. How pissed off is the clerk going to be when we get to that desk? Exactly. And is she even (laughs) real? Maybe she is AI and we just don't know. Um, And we're all just going to get stabbed when we get (laughs) Well, well, we want to know what you think. Um, How do you feel about Ex Machina? What are your thoughts about this episode? We talked about a lot of stuff and I would love to hear um, what listeners think because I think what we've said it, but like we're all kind of bringing our own lens to this and I want to hear more of those lenses and are you real are any of us actually real <laughs> like one of the most striking scenes is when he's like looking in his mouth and <laughs> yeah. cutting his arm so you know are any of us real 
Um, so you can tell us if you're real or not um, by it <laughs> and share answers to these questions uh, by following us on Psycho A Pod on Twitter and Instagram, which I just realized I'm probably inviting bots to tell me if they're real or not. So, I mean, mm. we're, we're fucked. So, you know, mm-hmm. but you can find us there. Make sure to look for prompts and stuff. And just, you know, that's a way to connect with us. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. It is private and moderated, and it's just this community where we can talk about some of the more sensitive things that we talk about in these episodes. So you can find us there. And if you want to share privately, you can email us at psychoapod at gmail.com. We would also love it if you would leave us a rate and review for you, please. Um, five stars, please. It really helps people find the pod and we would really appreciate it. And I'm getting better at not having a lot of weird feelings when I say that. So, <laughs> And our homework question for this week is, if you were the human component in a Turing test, what would your first question for the AI be? It's a fun one. I want to hear your answers. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I know. And I guess maybe we can, you know, find out how many of our listeners are real or Mm -hmm. not. So what are we watching next? We have a new month and a new theme. And our theme for February is generational trauma. And we are going to be joined in our next episode by one of my best friends, Val. And we are going to be talking about the movie Get Out. And I am really excited about this topic and this subject Mm -hmm. and just fascinated because I love this movie and I can't wait to talk about it. So yeah, make sure you watch Get Out before next week. And yeah, we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us and lots of other great shows, including the Losers Club, Halloweenies, and Going There with Dr. Mike by going to consequenceofsound.com. There's lots of great culture writing about film and TV and music and stuff there too. So make sure to just go and check it all out. It's really cool. Um, Jeremy, where can we find you online? And can you please tell us about the Ables and what's coming up for CinemaSins? Sure, sure. Uh, CinemaSins just launched a new channel uh, for TV commercials called Ooh. Commercial Sins. It may be the most appropriate target of our particular brand of humor ever. Oh, I'm looking uh, forward to this. Yeah. <laughs> you can find me personally on Twitter at jscotttn. Uh, it's J-S-C-O-T-T-T-N. Uh, the Ables is uh, a series of books I've written uh, and will finish up uh, late next year or late this year, I guess. Uh, about a group of disabled superhero kids, basically uh, disabled individuals uh, whose powers and abilities are impacted by their disabilities. And so Mm. the superhero society puts them in special ed and won't let them participate. And they have to basically work together to prove that they are just as able as everyone else in the superhero community. The third book came out in November, October. It was late because of COVID. But uh, I appreciate anyone that would like to check them out can go to uh, theablesbook.com and that'll give you links to read more and purchase. Yeah, and they're really great. That's awesome. We'll definitely link all of that in the show notes as well so people can have the links directly. So that's Mm -hmm. awesome. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, Mike, where can we find you? Oh, you could find me here, obviously. Uh, <laughs> you could also find my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum, where we cover horror movie franchises, doing like one movie in one episode at a time. We are actually, like right now, like for the time this comes up, we're wrapping up two films in Sinister. 
But then we are changing things up a little bit in a couple ways. We're going to be number one, covering more of a theme. So we're going to be covering like the new wave of like French extreme horror for about five movies. So I'm really excited to do that because these movies are just, yeah, they're a lot. They're, they're, for me. <laughs> they're a lot. We're also like, we're, you know, we're going from a weekly to a bi-weekly schedule, which means um, I can put off having to like watch things like the Leprechaun series because <laughs> we do eventually we are going to have to roll around to it. We get to cover the things I love. So Lindsay and I are going strong with that. We've got a lot of, um, we just recorded some new Patreon stuff last night. We're actually doing like, because she is like Lindsay Travis, for those who don't know, is probably one of the world's foremost authorities on comics in general, but Batman in particular. Like she is the bat bitch and she will tell you that. So <laughs> we needed something easy to do for Patreon this month. I'm like Batman 89 and her eyes just like lit up. Like, so that is what we're doing. So I cannot wait to basically hit record and say, Lindsay, go and <laughs> learn a ton about Tim Burton's Batman 89. And then just me act as her hype person for two hours, <laughs> basically. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> you can find me on the socials at Mike underscore Snoonian on Twitter. I'm back and out of Twitter jail. Um, <laughs> and uh, at, at pod and pendulum as well. Awesome. And Laura, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S, much like the lacy white thong that you slip over your mesh metal uh, private mm. parts while <laughs> getting ready to go out for the very first time into the above world. Mm. It's A-U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S -L -L on Twitter at underalls. <laughs> and as well on Instagram at Instaglum, like Instagram, but with a mood disorder. And uh, that's that's about it for now. I'm also sometimes on Losers Club and Halloweenies as well. And that's where I am. And also in this room alone forever, oh. never leaving. Oh. <laughs> but we're together in our hearts. Yes. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Jim Ferratu on the socials, Jen with two N's. You can also find me on the Losers Club doing some stand coverage and getting ready for, I feel like I've been saying this for a while, but we're going to talk about desperation and the regulators that is going to happen. So yeah, find me there. You can also find me writing some stuff for Consequence of Sound. And yeah, that's, that's me. So that is our episode on Ex Machina. And guys, I didn't do a robot voice for the entire episode. <laughs> I was really tempted. Congratulations, Aww. Jen. <laughs> I, I, you're, I mean, uh, uh, malfunctioning. Uh, uh. <laughs> I can't remember if I was going to say thank you or you're welcome or what. Uh, it's, Sorry. This is, this is how society ends, I think. <laughs> not um, with a bang, but a whimper. <laughs> I know, yeah. Not, not with a bang, but with a weird robot voice. Um, <laughs> Jeremy, this this was so much fun. Thank you thank so you. much for joining us. Um, and thank you for choosing this movie. This yeah, thank you for having me. You guys are awesome. I'm glad this podcast exists. Oh, Please thank come back. Thank you so back. much. Yes, come, come back, back anytime. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and with that, we came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And we're, we're all out of bubblegum. bubblegum. <laughs> <laughs> we're all out of bubblegum. Bubblegum. <laughs> 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 I never Wouldn't learned it stick to at our gears. <laughs>
Consequence Podcast Network.